for the first time, we are, as a congregation, studying through the Bible in one year. And we're using as our text what's uh, known as the Daily Bible. And this is an integrated Bible. The historical books are all integrated with the, with the uh, uh, prophetic books in the Old Testament. And then the epistles, the letters to the churches are integrated into the book of Acts and so forth in the New Testament. So it's a, uh, it's a chronological Bible. And we're reading and studying through this in this year. And we're better than halfway through. I think this is less than number, which is it, 33, 35, somewhere around there? 33. And uh, it's rapidly coming to a, a close. We'll be in December before we know it and finishing this study. But I want to share with you this morning out of Jeremiah once again and ask you to turn to the 35th chapter of Jeremiah. That is um, August 7th, August 6th, actually if you have your daily Bible. And of course, if you have a regular Bible, it's Jeremiah chapter 35. It's in its regular place. <laughs> That's an obvious statement, isn't it? <laughs> it's in its regular place. It's not out of place this morning. Praise God, it's early. <laughs> We're gonna look at uh, a people called the Rechabites in this chapter. They are a small group of nomadic people who've come into Jerusalem to avoid uh, the Babylonians who've invaded uh, Judah at this particular point in their history. But before we look at the passage, I want to kind of set the stage a little bit. I want to talk to you about the world or crowds. And something we all know is that crowds lie. Crowds lie. You never really gain the truth in the crowd. The Apostle Paul writes in um, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. He says, don't let the crowd stick you into its mold anymore. Don't listen to what the crowd is saying, because the crowd, in effect, lies. You can't trust the crowd. John says in his first epistle, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, let me read to you from this passage. He says, do not love the world, or don't love the crowds, or anything in the world. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So again, we see the same idea that the crowd is not trustworthy. Integrity is not strengthened by large numbers. Think about that. Integrity is not strengthened by large numbers. Rather, it is weakened by large numbers. Let me give you an example. A promise. Which promise is more likely to be kept? That which a politician makes to 100,000 people or that between two close friends? Yeah, the latter one. 
Just because there's 100,000 people and a, and a politician makes a promise, there's utterly no guarantee that that promise would be kept. Large numbers don't ensure integrity. It's the intimacy of small relationships, these small, close-knit relationships, that's where integrity is really found. I listened to a comment by some guy running for public office, a governor or a senator or something, I didn't remember who it was, it was just typical of what's going on today. And uh, some people who are opposing him dug up apparently quite a bit of dirt on his life, and he is obviously, uh, from their point of view, an adulterer. He's had several uh, extramarital affairs. And so the person interviewing him was asking him about this, and do you think this will have any effect on the campaign? And he says, no, I think everything in my personal life should be kept in my personal life, separate from my public life. No integrity. No character. I wouldn't vote for that guy if he was the last guy on earth. If he can't be trusted at home, how can you trust him in office? If he's not faithful in the smaller things, how can you trust him at the greater things? You see? And, uh, but the crowd, you know, the crowd gets all enamored with personality. And the crowd lies. You can't trust the crowd. We've all had everyday experience of the unreliability of crowds to, one, discern, and secondly, to reflect the truth. Crowds don't have the ability to really discern what's true. There's, we've heard the, 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 the phrases herd mentality, mob mentality. That's referring to crowds. And in a crowd, you very, very seldom, if ever, find uh, truth being discerned and reflected. Think with me. If a book or a record sells a million copies or a movie grosses $150 million in the first couple weeks, right? Uh, see, this is accepted. Just the sheer numbers and the sheer volume is accepted as evidence that that book, that record, that movie is excellent and important. I mean, after all, 50,000 people can't be wrong. Have you ever heard that? And so we say, oh, oh yeah. Well, everybody's going. Everybody's doing it. Let's all become part of the crowd. Automatically, great numbers mean accreditation. Are you with me? You following what I'm saying? Involvement of, of a majority of people in a certain form of behavior is often pointed to as evidence of that behavior's legitimacy. The whole, the whole emphasis, this is amazing, the whole emphasis behind the, the, uh, the gay movement and the movement to, for homosexuality to gain uh, a certain measure of status, social acceptance, is based on the Kinsey Report. And the Kinsey Report is seriously flawed. And the Kinsey Report said that, according to their surveys, 10% of the American population is homosexual. And that is way, way off. That is grossly exaggerated. But because they've got this number, then all of a sudden we've got to give social acceptability to a perverted lifestyle. Numbers. Crowds. If we just look at history and reflect for a moment on our own personal life, we see that truth 
is not based on purely statistics. And that crowds are often more foolish than they are wise. In a crowd, truth is reduced to merely a slogan. And we are reduced to being consumers. Now look at We have a crowd here this morning. We have crowds in all of our services. And we use slogans in our church. But you see that we, that, that we don't want the truth to be lost in just a slogan. We don't want this just reduced to a slogan. We talk about give them heaven. Wrapped up in that phrase is tremendous truth for the kingdom. Wrapped up in that phrase is tremendous truth. The tension for us is to not let that truth get squished down just into a slogan, but to maintain the vitality of that truth. And in a crowd, it can just become a slogan. Do you see? That's the problem that we have to deal with, and it's continuous for all of us as we deal with being in a crowd. Crowds make us consumers. Crowds make us consumers, just taking in whatever is dished out to us. And the result of all of that is that the, the very central and foundational elements of our life, think with me, the things like our ability to create, our drive to excel, our capacity to commune with God, these things atrophy. And they atrophy because of the effect of crowd on us. And if we allow the effect of crowd to take its effect on us, making us merely consumers, making us merely passive. Now, being in a crowd is unavoidable. <laughs> and in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with being in a crowd. But it's when we take on the characteristics of the crowd, when we take on the attitudes and the behavior of the crowd, when we begin to think like the crowd, when we begin to be submerged in the life of the crowd, that's when our lives individually become falsified. We no longer know the truth. We're no longer able to discern and reflect the truth. And our lives are falsified just like the life of the crowd is. Do you understand why, why Jesus, why Paul, why Peter, why all the biblical writers say, don't love the world? Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold? Do you see the danger of the crowd and the danger of the crowd mentality? Now again, there's a tension because we can't avoid being in them. They're all around us. This is a crowd. But in the context of the crowd, we've got to remain distinctly unique, each one of us, and committed to the truth. Discerning and reflecting. You don't just come in here and say, and, and, and you go out just mindless. You come in and you think with me. You examine the scriptures. Paul said the Bereans were more noble than all those who he had talked to. And they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. And so it's very easy to come and sit in a crowd. It's very easy to say, oh, well, Zach said, well, Zach said, well, Zach said. And then what Zach said is just reduced to a slogan, and it's taken for truth without going to the scripture and say, well, does it really say that? And so each one of us individually have to maintain our own sense 
that I'm in the crowd, but I'm not of the crowd. Not only in the church, but outside the church, especially outside the church. We can't avoid being in these crowds. The issue is, can we keep from being crowd-conditioned? Can we keep from being crowd-conditioned? Can we keep from trading our name in for a number, from just being one of the crowd, from letting the crowd reduce us to mindless passivity and just becoming a member of the herd and just going along, just going along? That's the tension that all of us have to deal with. Jeremiah, I love Jeremiah, and as we've been reading and studying Jeremiah, I've just been fascinated by this man. He was uncrowd conditioned. He wasn't crowd conditioned, he was uncrowd conditioned. This guy dealt with crowds most of his life. He was a man of the city. Unlike most of the other prophets who were out in the wilderness and wandered in and out of towns and villages, this guy was a man of the city. He hung out in Jerusalem. He dealt with the crowds. He mingled with the people every day. But he did not allow the crowd to dictate his message. That's significant. I mean, all you do is read his, his, his book here and you, just, you can see that. The crowd didn't shape his values. He didn't commission a public opinion survey to find out what the Jerusalem crowds wanted to hear about God. Oh, what should I preach on this week? A couple of people voiced their opinion to me that they thought it was unfair that I showed that film I tricked you last week. No, I didn't trick anybody. I never tell you ahead of time what I'm going to do. Right? And so they, but they were all incensed that I showed that film. And, and uh, I said, well, what if I told you ahead, a week ahead, that I was going to show that film? Would you have come? Well, no. I said, what a shame. What a shame. Should I take a public opinion survey to see what the crowds at Hope Chapel want to hear about God? I'm going to give them more than heaven this morning. <laughs> Incidentally, no one's buying the tape this weekend. That's interesting. They don't want to hear this again. Somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, they said, what's distinctive about Hope Chapel? And what's distinctive about your style and your philosophy of ministry? Uh, what, what do you do? What, what, what's, God, what's God leading you to do? And I thought about that a long time. And my response was to him, uh, God has called me, I believe, to really challenge the body to faith and maturity. To challenge the body to faith and maturity. And not everybody can hear the things I have to say. Not everybody wants to hear them. Not everyone has ears to hear. And more people than not want to hear pablum. They want to have their tummies rubbed and they want to they want to know and that, here's the big deal today the big deal today is to is to help people feel better to help people feel better 
I don't see Jeremiah trying to help people feel better. I see Jeremiah saying, get on with it. Are you with me? And most of you are aware that you can't come to this church very long and sit here week after week after week and feel comfortable. Sooner or later, I get to you. And that's my goal. I'm telling you that. You know that. And, I, you know, and I mean, I want to be liked like everybody else. But it's not my lot in life, I guess. It's my lot to challenge and to challenge to faith. Faith, trust God, take a step of faith. Get out there where you can't do it. And so that's why we don't take public opinion polls <laughs> about what should be preached. Jeremiah didn't ask for a show of hands to determine the level of moral behavior to stress. God shaped his behavior. God directed his life, and God trained his perceptions. Not the crowds. Not the crowds, not public opinion. This shaping, this training, this directing that had gone on in Jeremiah's life took place as he prayed and as he meditated long and passionately on God's word. In that intimate communion with God, prayer, with the book open, reading, meditating, long and passionately on his word. God, speak to me. Fill me with a vision for your kingdom and who you are and what you want. And that was the thing that allowed Jeremiah to be passionate. Listen to what he says. In chapter 20, verse 9, Jeremiah says this. His word is in my heart like a fire. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Do we say that? Is that the sentiment of our life? Oh, God, your word is in my bones like a fire. I can't hold it in. I'm weary. I can't hold it in. I've got to preach. Paul said much the same thing over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. When he says, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. I am compelled. Isn't that exciting? I read things like that. Ooh, wow, that's, that's life. That's powerful stuff. Jeremiah made his mark. He wanted everything that God promises. Do you want everything God promises? I do. I want everything God promises. Everything he has, I want it. My son wants everything that I could possibly promise him. Do you know that? <laughs> and that's okay. I have to be very careful what I promise. He reminds me he has a memory like his mother. <laughs> Jeremiah wanted to participate in all that God does. God, I want to, I want to, I want to be in everything you're involved in. Everything you'll let me be involved in, I want to be involved in it. His spiritual intensity and his passion set him apart from the crowds. From the crowds. Sometimes, think about this with me. 
Have you ever been in the presence of someone who is gifted, talented, or achieves excellent in some area of their life? Achieves excellence? Have you ever been in the presence of somebody like that? In the presence of somebody like that, do you get inspired? You look at him and you say, wow, I want to be like that person. And then you, you seek to, to implement into your life the same kind of disciplines that can lead to that kind of excellence. I get that way. I get inspired. There are people in this church that inspire me just as I observe their life and I watch how they live and, and I watch and see what happens through their lives. I get inspired and that just charges my batteries. I remember when I was in school, when I was in seminary, I had a professor, he and I were very close. And uh, he lived his life very, very intensely. I think he read Jeremiah. <laughs> in fact, I know he did. And he lived his life very intensely and he was utterly committed to excellence in every area. And uh, you know, I just, we were playing racquetball one, one day, and I, I just, I said, stop, time out. I mean, he was diving and sliding across the floor, going for these shots, and he was making them, you know, and I'm going, God. So I called time, and I think subconsciously, in an effort to intimidate him and to get him to quit playing so good, I said, why are you so intense about everything? Why are, you, why are you diving after these balls? Why are you making these incredible shots? You're driving me crazy. <laughs> now, again, understand, I was just a, a naive young seminary student. And this was a wizened seminary professor. So he turned to me and he said, well, he says, let me tell you something. He said, I made up my mind a long time ago that whatever I did, I was going to do it as unto him. I was going to do whatever I did as an act of worship. I was going to do my best. I was going to do everything I could to excel. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And that challenged me. That challenged my life and it challenged my faith. I remember some of the things he said to me, but I remember his life more than anything else. And his life marked me. And so when we're around people like that, we, we, we can be stimulated to excel. But it requires to excel that we implement in our life certain disciplines. True? Likewise, when we're around people like that, we can become intimidated, can't we? In comparison to someone who is really excelling, an artist, an athlete, a, a saint, Sometimes we look at our life in comparison and we become painfully aware of our own inadequacies. Our insecurities begin to surface rather clearly to us. You ever found that happening? You find yourself intimidated? And then the temptation is very, very strong to just accommodate yourself to, well, just sliding by, just getting along. I could never achieve that level of whatever, so I'll just... I'll just get by. And we're intimidated. That artist, that athlete, that saint are then rejected as evidence and proof of what is possible. They're rejected as proof of what is possible. And then we end up treating them as 
mere diversions and or entertainments for lazy spectators and bored consumers, the crowds. We settle down into a crowd mentality. We're intimidated. We don't think it's possible. This was Jeremiah's fate in Jerusalem. The crowds avoided dealing with his life by setting him apart. I mean, it's so astounding to me when, when, when the Jews are carried off by the Babylonians, Jeremiah is left behind. Here is the most important figure in Jerusalem. And because the people had so disregarded him, when the Babylonians came in, they, it was a normal custom to transport out of that area all the important, significant, powerful people. The king was taken, the king's family, all the, the lawyers, the doctors, the dentists, the, all the professional people, the artisans, everyone was exported to Babylon. And when they came to Jeremiah, they said, what about him? Nah, he's a nobody. When he was, in fact, the most important person in the entire Jerusalem. But you see, the crowds in Jerusalem avoided dealing with his life, and they set him apart. They understood what he was saying. They understood his message and probably in some significant measure admired even the way he lived his life. But they were crowd conditioned. They, the people were crowd conditioned. They couldn't break loose from the crowd. They couldn't think on their own. They didn't disbelieve in God but they disqualified themselves from a strenuous and personal participation. How many times have people, you, we, we see the task ahead of us, we see the challenge ahead of us, but we feel intimidated and we back away and we automatically disqualify ourselves from a strenuous and personal participation in that process. Are you with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? Preparing these messages every week is a monumental task for me. This is the, one of the hardest things I've ever done as being pastor of this church is to teach through the Bible in a year. Just to select a text out of the incredible mass of scriptures each week we read. And every Thursday, I mean, you talk to my wife, I go home and I study at home. And I sit down at my desk and I read and I think and I read and I think and, I, and it comes late in the afternoon, she comes up and checks on me and my paper is still blank. She says, how's it going? I said, it ain't. I said, this is hard. I'm sorry I ever started this. You see, the, the task can be overwhelming and the challenge is overwhelming. And the temptation just to back away is strong. But I can't back away because Friday night I got to be in here with something significant. And so it requires strenuous and personal participation in that process. Are you with me? Listen, this is very important. The Bible has always insisted. The Bible has always insisted that there are no special aptitudes required for a life with God. God is not partial. 
You don't have to have some great special spiritual experience. You don't have to have some great degree of morality. You don't have to have some special intelligence or giftedness. God is not partial. Second Chronicles 16.9, I love this verse. The eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the entire earth, seeking beautiful people. Gifted people. Intelligent people. Is that what it says? No. The eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the entire earth looking for someone. that, that, That is so poignant. Looking for someone to strongly support whose heart is completely his. God doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care what you have or don't have. He just wants to know, do I have your heart? Because if I got your heart, man, you got all my power to support you. There's no need to be intimidated. No need to cave in and give up. Because you have the power of the God of the universe there to support you. Whew. Does that grab you? Grabs me. Look at Jeremiah 35. The question is, how can people who are conditioned to a life of distraction and indulgence be moved to live at their best? How can the people in Jerusalem, conditioned to a life of distraction and indulgence, be moved to live at their best, literally to plunge into life and to quit loitering on the fringes. Now in Jeremiah 35, you have these people called the Rechabites. Now again, they're a nomadic tribe. There's probably maybe 30, 40 of them at the most. Small family. They trace their ancestry back some 250 years to a man by the name of Jonadab, the son of Rechab. And we'll read about this in just a second. Now, they're in Jerusalem because the Babylonians and the Aramean armies are sweeping through Judah, and it's not safe to be outside the city. So they're seeking refuge and protection from the Babylonians. They were an obvious oddity in the city. They were conspicuous, noted by everybody, commented on, gawked at, no doubt. Within a few days, everyone in Jerusalem will have either seen them or have heard about them. Jeremiah is instructed by the Lord to invite them to lunch. And one of the features of lunch, he's going to serve wine. The problem is the Rechabites don't drink wine. So then why even do this? Well, because the Rechabites are going to be an example. The Rechabites are going to be living evidence of the two things that the crowd-conditioned people of Jerusalem assumed were impossible. The first thing that they assumed was impossible is this, that everyday, ordinary people could live their entire lives directed by a personal command and not on the impersonal pressures of the crowd. It is possible 
to live your entire life on the basis of a personal command and not be influenced by the crowd. But you see, everyday ordinary people don't think that's possible. The second thing that they're going to learn is that it is possible to maintain a distinctive way of life. It is possible to maintain a distinctive way of life and not be assimilated into the attitudes and behaviors, the ways and patterns of the crowd. It is possible to be in the world, but not of it. It is possible. Now, these are the things that the Jerusalemites needed to learn, and the Rechabites are living examples of these two great realities. The people in Jerusalem couldn't miss the Rechabites. I mean, they're so obvious. And now, if they could just be made to see what set them apart and gave them identity, then just possibly they could be inspired also to a disciplined and dedicated life. Oh, if they could just get a hold of what's, what's true about the Rechabites. So Jeremiah, of course, uh, called by the Lord, seeing the possibilities, goes to work. God commands him to, to acquire a, an adjacent room in the temple. Now, the, the temple had a variety of, of rooms that you could have meetings in, like we have classrooms you know, in our building here that you can have uh, ancillary meetings in. And Jeremiah uh, acquires one of these rooms. Read this with me. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So I went to get uh, Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord. Now, we won't read the rest of that part. It says, drop down the last sentence of that section. He says, then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the men of the Rechabite family and said to them, drink some wine. So here's Jeremiah, a very gracious and a very friendly host, lifting his glass of wine in a toast. He says, Lachaim. Drink some wine. And what happens? Did they join him? Did they relax their rule for just a moment so as not to offend their new friend and host? Did they realize that they were living under emergency war conditions? And as such, it was only courteous to adapt to the customs of their protectors? Surely it would be okay to have some wine. Did they take a realistic view of the situation and share the common cup, showing appreciation for being treated so generously? Did they? No! No, they did not! As Jeremiah knew they would not. The Rechabites lived life not on the basis of what was current with the crowd, but on the basis of what had been commanded them by their forefather. Listen to this. In chapter 35, verse 6. But they replied, We do not drink wine, because our forefather Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command, neither you drink wine. And he goes on to describe that, that they are required to live a nomadic lifestyle. 
as insurance that they will never be part of the crowd. He says, neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to, uh, to live in or had vineyards and fields and crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather Jonadab commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian Aramean armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem here. They lived their life not on the basis of what everybody else was saying and doing. They lived their life on the basis of a command that their forefather, Jonadab, 250 years earlier had given. Their way of life was not formed out of their circumstances, but rather out of their devotion to their forefather. An ancient command, not the current fad, not the current headline, gave them their identity. They got their identity, their sense of who they are, purpose, direction, from a command. They were a commanded people, and they were a disciplined people. So then Jeremiah now, after the response of the Rechabites, turns to the people of Judah and Jerusalem in verses 13, and he speaks to them. But I want you to note that as he speaks to the Jerusalemite people, he does not say that they should maintain the specific details. They should, they should copy the lifestyle in terms of the details of the Rechabites. But that, they, that, that they, he wanted them to see that the Rechabites lived in obedience to a command. That's the principle. They lived in obedience to a command. And they lived with integrity in a disciplined lifestyle. Two principles. They lived in obedience to a command. They had a command. And they obeyed it. And they lived with integrity, a disciplined lifestyle, in order to fulfill that command. So listen to what he says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Go and tell the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord. Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine, and this commandment has been kept. To this day they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, and yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, Each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given you and your forefathers. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them, but you guys don't obey me. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Let me ask you a question. If you heard that, would that affect you? When he says, I'm going to bring on you every disaster I've spoken to you. That would get my attention, I would hope. Jeremiah's message is this. 
Just as the Rechabites had a father, you also have a father who commanded you to live in total relationship to him. You know that he has set you apart. He set you apart for a life of love and a life of blessing. Why don't you respond, he says. Why don't you respond? He says, if you think it's because ordinary people can't do it, think again. Think again. The Rechabites are ordinary people, and they've been doing it for 250 years. You also have a way of life that requires certain disciplines to maintain its character. A way of life, a godly way of life, in order to maintain the character of that way of life, requires certain disciplines to uphold it. The disciplines involve you in making specific decisions about the way you live your life. Some of these disciplines are regular worship, regular worship, faithful prayer, tithing, caring for the poor, moral conduct, striving after righteousness. Jeremiah says to them, why don't you do it? You can. The Rechabites are living proof of this. Don't just look at them. Don't just talk about them. Pay attention to what is distinctive about them. They live in obedience to a command. And they live a life of integrity, disciplined life. They're not entertainment. They're an example. Jeremiah says, I'm not just pointing them out for you to be entertained by them. They're not just a novelty. They're an example. Let them show you how badly and boringly you live and how well you can live. Learn from the Rechabites, he says. He tells them, in effect, your problem is not that you're unable. Your problem is not that you're incapable. Your problem is, he says, that you're lazy. You're lazy. That's part of the church's problem today. Are you aware of that? The church is lazy. The church has settled far too many people, and the crowds in the church have settled for status quo. Have just settled for getting by. I heard someone admit to me, and I, and I, I applaud him for at least admitting this, trying to stimulate him on to greater faith and service. He said, look, I, I just want to get in. On one hand, what a tragic statement. But on the other hand, he was truthful. And far too many people say, look, I, I, as long as I get in. Man, I want to come in in a blaze of glory. I want to come in with all kinds of treasure. I don't want to come in the back door. I don't want to just sneak in. I want the trumpets to blare when I arrive. I hope to shout. I want the angels to go, Zach is here. I want the Lord to say, welcome, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come in and enjoy your father's rest. I don't want to just sneak in the side door. I don't want to just kind of skunk around and, well, I just made it. 
Am I, am I making any sense to anybody? Yes. See, the people were lazy. Far too many people in the church today are lazy. They've disqualified themselves. They've allowed the crowd, they've allowed the task, they've allowed all these things to intimidate them. How are you gifted spiritually? Where has God called you? Where do you fit into the body of Christ? What ministry has he called you to? There's not a single person in Jerusalem at this particular point, nor is there a single person in our church nor any other church who is not up to living conscientiously and deliberately as a child of God and practicing the distinctive disciplines that support and preserve a life of faith. There's not a single person who isn't up to this. He says to the Jerusalemites, but you have you've let the crowd turn you into spectators and consumers. You've let your lives get flabby and indulgent. You've ignored the best things that have ever been said to you. God's word. You've ignored them. And you've let the chatter and the gossip of the crowds fill your ears. Will you not let God's command develop in you a life of holy obedience instead of letting the crowd drag you into a sloppy indolence? I mean, is he, is he getting to the point? The moral level of our society today is incredibly shameful. It is absolutely an embarrassment. I mean, you look around at this world, you look around at our culture, America, in God we trust. Ha! The moral level, the lack of integrity at every level in our land is an incredible embarrassment, and I would submit to you, it's our fault. It's our fault. You can't blame the world. You can't blame the devil. God has placed the church in the world to be salt and light, to make a difference, to hold back evil, to create thirst in people's lives, but I would submit to you that by and large the church has become saltless and lazy. I thank God for the hundreds and hundreds of you in this congregation that are committed to the kingdom of God and committed to ministry that are hearing God speak to him and saying, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. I thank God for you. But there's still many, many others who are still on the fringe, intimidated, unwilling to dive in to the kingdom of God, still listening to the chatter of the crowds. Every time we retrieve a part of our life from the crowd, and respond to God's call on our lives, we know the very best that's in us. We can know that. Every time we reject the habits of the crowd and practice the disciplines of faith, we become a little bit more alive. We become a little bit more like Jesus. And the Bible says, when we're no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, 
but we're postured in such a way that, that our lives are transformed by the renewing of our minds, then we'll be able to know and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's will will be proclaimed. God's will will be lived out. We'll be, it'll be tested in our lives. It'll be proved in our lives. But as long as we're given to the crowds, as long as we're allowing the crowds to shape our values, dictate to our life, we'll never know God's will. And we'll never be able to reflect God's will to a world that desperately needs his hand. I explained to my son the other day, he said, Dad, why is there so much evil? Why is there so much? Why doesn't God do something? I said, honey, God has done something. He sent his son. Jesus died on the cross. He's opened the door. And then God commissioned people. He commissioned his church. He said, go into all the world. The works that I do, you'll do greater works. Trust me. Paul says, it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. God doesn't need us, but he chooses us. He chooses to involve us. He says, now pursue excellence. Run the race. Finish well. Don't let the crowds dictate to you. Beloved church, be uncrowd conditioned. Be uncrowd conditioned. And as John says, don't love the world. Don't love anything in the world. Don't get too attached to it. Don't make that your God. Don't love these things. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has, and that which he does, does not come from the Father, but comes from the world. The world and its desires will pass away. He says, but the man who does the will of God, that man will live forever. Amen? Get the tape. <laughs>